Romans 12, 9 through 21. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need and practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Check, check. Thank you very much, Ruth. Thank you for your words. Got a little misty. A little misty. All right. Also, that last song we sang also made me misty. Great job, band. Um, so I, uh, I was working on the sermon this week. A normal sermon is about 2,000 words. And by the time I was done, I had 15,000. I was like, this isn't going to work. <laughs> so I broke it into like three. I'm, I, I'm trying to keep a schedule with the book of Romans here, people. And I, so we're, here's what we're going to do. Um, there's actually one huge section here that this is the first part of three. Um, I'll talk about it next week, but chapter separations in the Bible are a huge problem. They were added in the 15th century, um, and they break up thoughts sometimes. There's, there's no break of thought between chapter 12 and chapter 13. And when you get to chapter 13, that's when you get to the part where it's like submit to earthly governing authorities and blah, 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 blah. The things that, that are really uh, have been misused a lot by the church over the last 2,000 years. And, uh, and so I wanted to put a lot of focus on that, and I wanted to talk about the relationship of the church to earthly empires. I want to talk about all that stuff. And I started to do it this week, but it can't happen this week. I got I to lay groundwork first. So we're going to talk about that next week and the week after. And it may turn into like three sermons. Um, I'm trying to approach things well. Last time I preached a sermon on Christian nationalism, we lost 60 people in the church. <laughs> this is what happens. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I'm trying to, trying to do things gently and kind, you know, just, you know, there's a way. I'll figure it out. In the next 20 years. Um, but I do have a couple of things I wanted to touch on first. Um, uh, we are going on sabbatical, me and my wife and my family, for the first time in 19 years. Uh, we're leaving in about three weeks. So I have this sermon. Thank you. I'm excited too. I feel like I'm going to get bored. Um, so I have this week and next week and the week after to wrap up all these big thoughts here. Um, and then you're going to be well taken care of. Uh, we got Leo, we got Ruth. We got, uh, we got some other people. We got men and women coming from all over the place and they're going to be speaking. And, uh, and I'm going to go take a big nap. Um, and so, yeah, that's what I wanted to put out first. And so let's pray. And then we're going to jump into the text here uh, today. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would grant us peace right now, that we would be here with each other, that we would, we would recognize your image in each other. Uh, and that we would call that forth in each other, that we would say, the, we would just point out the things in, in, in the lives of each other that are Christ-like and that are good, 
and affirm them in these things. And I pray that the things that are not quite where they should be, the things that don't reflect you well, I pray that we would submit those to you this morning and begin that work of, of changing and repenting and healing. Uh, thank you for joining us this morning. Speak to us, work on our hearts, change us, mold us in your way. Uh, be with me as I speak this morning. Let me remember the things I've studied and, uh, and speak through me uh, to all of us. And uh, thank you. In your name, amen. Okay, so um, I want to talk about reading the Bible well, first off. Um, most of us in this room grew up in the evangelical tradition, which, which, uh, which tends to read the Bible as a book written to everyone, everywhere, in all times. And so you would sit and you would open your Bible and you read it as if it's a letter from God to you. And I appreciate the sentiment, but I, I think when you do that, you, you miss what the authors were doing. And you miss a lot of the treasure that is there for you to dig out. And so, um, and so uh, when we, oftentimes when we come to sections like this, like the third section of Romans 12, and we, let me back it up one slide, and you read this, uh, and you kind of read it as a list of commands from Paul. Um, and that, that Paul is, is, okay, so, you know, you're going to go about your day. How do I go about today? Well, uh, love must be sincere. Okay, I'm going to be sincere. Uh, I'm going to hate, okay, I hate the things that are bad. And I love the things that are good. And it's just, it just becomes like sort of an almost self-help, kind of feel-good kind of stuff. But there's a reason Paul wrote this. There's context and there's pain and there's a backstory that will help you read it differently. And so that's what I try to, like, that's... I feel like that's why I'm here, to give people the backstory of the Bible so that they can read well, um, and that it can, it can change them, and, and, uh, and, and they can set the path uh, straight. And so, uh, you, can, you can go on and on, and the point is that oftentimes we take the point of Paul here, and we make it this sort of pleasant paragraph, like a, like a self-help thing, or we make it a list of commands. And Paul's not, Paul's not in the position in the Bible to make commands. We, 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 we follow the commands of Jesus. We need to read Paul through the lens of Jesus, whereas oftentimes a lot of us tend to read Jesus through the lens of Paul. Uh, that's backwards. We, we have to understand why, what Paul is doing. Paul is moving through the world in a way that is Christ-like. And so in some cities, certain things are Christ-like, and those same things in other cities are not Christ-like. That's why in, in, in Ephesus, Paul has, this is my favorite example, in Ephesus, Paul doesn't allow the church there doesn't allow women in positions of authority yet. They eventually did from church history. Um, but in Rome, in Rome, they did. And it all has to do with what's wise and Christ-like in this moment to submit to these people and be kind and gentle to them in a way that shows them the love of Jesus. And so any instructions Paul gives to certain cities are to those cities, and we can read them and we can glean the heart of it, and we can pull things out for us and how to guide our lives in these things. And that's some of the work I'm going to do today. But before I go here, we, before we jump into this, I have to give you some, a little bit of... Um, groundwork and remind you, because we always have visitors and stuff, so I, I want to catch you up real fast on how to read chapter, Romans chapter 12. Uh, first off, there are three movements in Romans chapter 12. It starts off with a God orientation, or how we, how we face God and how we respond and interact with God, and, and that's in verse 1 and 2. And then it moves to verse 3 and 8, which is the body of Christ orientation, how we look at each other, how we view each other, the role we play in each other's lives as a church, as, as one people as a family. And lastly, it's verse 9 through, 9 through 21, which is today's passage, has a public orientation. So it goes to God, and then it goes to you, and then we all turn together. And, and these passages, 9 through 21, are actually how we face the world. And it doesn't stop actually in verse 21. It goes until about chapter 13, about verse 10 or 11. It goes really far, and we're going to touch on that later. Um, one more thing to remind you of, the book of Romans is written to specific people, a specific church that is made up of a certain cultural uh, sort of uh, mix, mixture. There are two, two audiences in Paul's 
letter. The, the church in Rome is maybe 200 people at the, in the first century. I think it was more like 100 people in the first century, and it was made up of five different house churches. And in these house churches are two different types of people gathering together to worship together. There are the strong, which is the wealthy liberal Gentiles uh, with high status in Roman society who worship Jesus in a Roman way. They, they had a very sort of different way of of serving, of of worshiping God. They would eat meat sacrificed to pagan idols because they didn't believe these gods existed, so they have no problem eating the meat. Um, they, They lived lives that were different. Their marriages and their households functioned differently than the Jewish households. The other audience is what Paul calls the weak. The reason he calls them, it's not an insult. Paul is one of them. Paul is a Jewish Pharisee converted to Christianity. So these are Jewish Christians. They're poor, They're traditionalist Jewish Christians. They worship Jesus as the Jewish people worshiped Yahweh. They they don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. They obey the Torah. They are circumcised. They keep the Sabbath. They have all these very strict things. They're the conservatives and the Gentiles are the liberals. And they're in a church together. And the book of Romans is written to them not to tell them how to get saved. The book of Romans is not about how to get saved. These are already Christians. The book of Romans is written about what salvation should do in the life of a diverse room full of people how it binds them together in a way that brings healing and reconciliation and unity. Uh, and so the book of Romans is about how we do this. And I cannot think of a book more important for today than the book of Romans. Uh, and the most important thing we can do when reading the book of Romans is interpret it correctly. Because if we interpret it wrong, if we make it about individual personal salvation for us personally, we not only miss what Paul's doing, but we miss the tools that are available to bring healing and restoration to this world when we do this. Uh, so these are the two audiences he's writing to, and different passages have different audiences in the book. And so I'm, I'm beginning to build sort of a, a graph here to help you understand this. Chapter 16 we read, we're doing Romans backwards, by the way. I've already explained this, I don't want to do it again. Um, but in chapter 16, it tells us who the people are. Chapter 16 is written to everyone. It's both Jews and Gentiles as one people. That's how the book ends. The book starts with one audience, just the Jewish people in chapter 1, and it ends with both. Um, chapter 12 has a movement. It starts over here with the strong Gentile liberals, okay, for chapters 1 and 2, because they're the ones who have all the power. And he says... You need to submit to those who are lower than you. You need to, you know, look at, have a renewed mind. Don't play this power struggle, this status and honor thing. You are above no one. You are under Jesus and you are under all of your brothers and sisters. And then we move over to 12 through, uh, to 3 through 8. And this is how everyone looks at each other, right? And it's to both. But this passage we're about to dive into now is 12, 9 through 13, 10. This is to the Jewish people. And there's a reason Paul needs to talk to them. There's something he needs to talk to them about. There are things that were happening. And it starts um, with, this, with this thing that happened in 49 CE called the Crestos Affair. Crestos is, is the word that simply, we're pretty sure it meant Christ. That's what they were talking about. But what happened was, um, it all started with the Christian church being planted in Rome. And some, apparently there were some people who were of high status and high honor, maybe proconsuls in the city of Rome, who became followers of Jesus. And when they do, did that, they suddenly started gathering in the Christian churches. And in the first century, the Christian churches were a gathering of all different types of people, all different races, all different nationalities, all different sort of, uh, there were men, there was women, uh, there, was, there was masters, there was slaves, there was wealthy, there was poor. And they were all together at the tables equally with each other, submitting to each other and listening to the Spirit of God speak to them through the body of Christ, which is our brothers and sisters, our family. And so when this happened, it started disrupting the social order of the Roman Empire. 
And so what they did was, as Rome does, they overreacted. And they're like, well, let's just get all the religious people out of here that aren't Roman, that, aren't, that don't do or worship our Greco-Roman gods and, and take part in our sort of cosmology and all this. And so they kicked all the Jewish people out of, out of Rome. Um, anyone who's Jewish, Christian Jew, uh, Jew, uh, Jewish Christians or just um, devout Jew, Jewish, traditional Jewish people, they pushed them all out of the, uh, the city of Rome. And that was uh, Emperor... Uh, Caligula? No, is it? I, I totally, hold on. I'm sure I wrote it down here. I, I get off my notes and I stop paying attention. That's Claudius. It was Claudius. Um, right before Nero. So Nero comes up after him, and we're going to talk about some of the stuff that, that, that uh, happened there as well. But uh, we read about it in, 18, in chapter, Acts chapter 18, verse 2. It says Claudius had ordered all the Jews to, uh, to leave Rome. Um, and so there's this, when you get exiled from a place, you lose everything. They lost their houses, they lost all their money, they lost their livelihood, they had to rebuild entirely. They came back about 10 years later when this book is being written, they had come back just a few years earlier, uh, and they have nothing, and they're poor. Not only that, these liberal Gentiles have taken over their church, and they don't know how to worship Jesus in their own church anymore, and there's all this tension and all this fighting, and so the book gets written from the city of Corinth, where the same thing had already happened and been fixed, and it's sent to Rome so the gospel could do its work there and repair the relationships there. The second thing that had happened was these indirect idolatrous taxes that Nero had recently um, passed, where anything coming and leaving Rome received an extra sort of indirect tax. The Jewish people always rioted in the first century over taxes. And it, not, not because, not for the same reason that Americans used to riot over taxes, and sometimes still do, um, not for that reason. Uh, for the Jewish people, a tax paid to Caesar was completely idolatrous. It has the image of Caesar on the coin. It affirms that Caesar is somehow their lord and their, their leader, and he wasn't. The Jewish people had no king but Yahweh. Yahweh was their direct king, and they followed Yahweh. And anytime they had to pay taxes, it was like they were taking part in idolatry. And so oftentimes, rather than paying taxes, they would rather die. And so there is this sentiment over all the Jewish Christians and all the Jewish, traditional Jewish people in Rome that there should be a revolution, that we should rise up and overthrow the Roman government. And they believed the Messiah would come and rise up and overthrow the, the government. This is why John writes back to Jesus after John's in prison. And he says, basically, are you the one who is to come or should I be looking for someone else? Like, in other words, why aren't you rising up and overthrowing the government of Rome? And Jesus says, look, I'm doing something different. The lame are being healed, the blind can see. Healing is happening, restoration is happening. This is not what you thought it was. I'm not here to do a violent revolution. I'm here to do something totally, totally different. But in the church in Rome, there was this general sense, this sort of like, these people who looked at, at the, the revolution talk that was going on, sort of the civil war talk going on, and they're like, yeah, I'm kind of on this side. I think we should rise up, and I think we should overthrow our government. And Paul wants to talk to them. What Paul says here would not have connected with, with the liberal Gentile Romans in the church who had converted to Christianity. It wouldn't have connected with them. They're already in power they don't really want to overthrow their own government. Um, they do really well in Rome. They have high status and honor in Rome. The Jewish Christians, however, are, are, are walking in pain every day, in and out. As they, as they go throughout their day, they remember what's happened to them. They know that they have nothing, and the reason they have nothing is because just a few years ago, they were, they were persecuted by the, by the emperor. And so the taxes were the last straw. And in the 40s and 50s, there's a huge anti-Roman sentiment. And so now, with sort of... Um, uh, uh, this, this old mind sort of swept away and with this sort of new mind that we're looking at the Bible with here, 
that we're reading this book with. I want to go, go to this passage. I want to read it together um, and see what Paul is doing. So first off, one of the things you'll notice is that Paul quotes a lot of scriptures uh, in this passage. That's, that's always a sign that Paul is talking to the Jewish community in the church whenever he's quoting scriptures because the, the Romans wouldn't have known scripture. The Gentile Christians would not have connected with that at all. Whenever, whenever Paul is quoting the Hebrew scriptures, and right here he quotes Psalm, uh, Proverbs 25, Whenever he's doing this, he's talking to them. And so, so we can get into their mindset and we say, these are people who have been oppressed. They have a lot of pain and they're doing their best to make it through the world uh, with the amount of pain that they are carrying. And those people are like that in, in, in our world today. And so these words might connect with them in another way than they might connect with you. For you, they might be a nice sentiment because maybe you're at the top of power in our country. But if you're at the bottom, you're going to read this. It's going to hit you a little differently. And so let's look at Proverbs chapter 25. Um, This is what Paul is quoting several times in this passage. This is what he wants them to have in their mind. In the Old Testament, uh, in in the first century, in the New Testament, whatever, whenever you would quote, when you would quote a piece of Old Testament scripture, you're trying to bring that entire text to the mind of the reader because they memorized these kinds of things. When you quote Proverbs, all the men and women who were Jewish memorized Proverbs. Uh, little girls up until the age of 13 memorized Psalms and Proverbs, but little boys memorized Psalms and Proverbs and the entirety of the Pentateuch, the first five books. And if you, if you couldn't do it by a particular age, you couldn't study to be a rabbi and you were sent away. Um, but everyone would have known the book of Proverbs. And so Paul quotes it here, and everyone who is Jewish in the community, their ears would have perked up and they would have looked, because Proverbs 25 says specific things about living under kings of the earth about, you know, we have a king. Our king is Jesus. In the Old Testament, they understood their king is Yahweh. They recognize no earthly king unless chosen by God. And so how do we live in these, in these earthly empires under these earthly kings? And so Proverbs 25 has little sort of, I, I got some highlights here for you. Verse two, the hearts of kings are unsearchable. Uh, verse three, do not exalt yourself in the king's presence. Do not claim a place among his great men. Uh, in other words, don't reach don't, don't, don't try to climb the ladder of status and power in this world. Uh, verse 5 and 6, it says, through, the, through patience a ruler can be persuaded and gentle tongue can break a bone. So there's, he's sort of talking about building a relationship and being patient and, and working with them instead of, instead of revolution. Uh, verse 15, if your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head and the Lord will reward you. That's a weird one. I'm going to talk about it in a little bit. Um, so this is the idea. The whole idea here is Love your enemies. And they know this. This command is over and over and over. Love your enemies, even if they're above you, even if they're over you. Somehow, we must love our enemies because this is what God wants us to do. This is the thing that separates the Christian from everything else. The love of enemies. The belief and the hope that God can make my enemy my brother or my sister, a family member, my kinship, my kinsman. So, um, they understand they are to love their enemies. And apparently, Paul believes, like the Romans Proverbs, that evil in high places can be moved by, by goodness, by love, it, that somehow powerful people can be moved by the love of God. Paul believes this. And so he calls their mind to this text, and he starts off by, by stating this and then sort of defining what love looks like. So he wants to he's talk to the Jewish people, and he says, love must be sincere, and then he's going to define it. I want to read for you a New Testament scholar named Sarah Lancaster. Um, she wrote a phenomenal commentary on the book of Romans. Um, it's, it's, it's made by the same sort of commentary series that was William James, William James Jennings um, that we read a lot during uh, our study, our three-year study of the book of Acts. So uh, she says this, Paul is not explicitly telling his hearers what to do. Paul simply describes love and he does not even use a verb to do so in, in keeping with the approach he has established of urging 
of urging rather than commanding. He describes and lets the hearers draw their conclusions from what he has said. So these are kind of, a lot of these are kind of vague. He's being pastoral. He's not making laws. He's not telling you, uh, if you don't do this, you're a sinner, you're insane. He's, he's, he's being pastoral and he's saying, hey, I know you're in pain. I know you're hurt. You also know that we need to love our enemies. And so let me talk to you about what that might look like. And there's so much more that could be said, or you could have said a lot less. The sentiment here is that love must be sincere. And so we look at, at the beginning of this thing. It says um, in Romans 12, 9, love must be sincere. So this is the, the title of sort of the, the, chat, the passage he's going to write here. Love must be sincere. And then he's going to expound about what this might look like. A sincere love in your position may look different than a sincere love in somebody else's position. But either way, there are characteristics which are all the same, moving all the way through the whole thing. Uh, and so the Greek word he uses here is this word anupokritos. Everyone say, anupokritos. No, you guys are a little tired today. It's okay. I empathize with that. I too am tired sometimes. But not right now. I'm hyper. Um, anupokritos. It means without, like, one of my favorite definitions is, you know, there's a whole bunch. My favorite was without camouflage. Like, obvious. Not hiding anything. That my love, you can see it. And you can tell that it's real. Now, um, the ancient Romans, like, it, it, this, the word sincere is one of my favorite words whenever it's used in the Bible. And this, it's not always the same word. Um, it's not always anupokrito. Sometimes it's, it, it's, it's like there's two other variations. But there's this thought at the center of it that even goes with this, without camouflage. So let me tell you about this. Now, in the ancient Roman Empire, um, Greek sculptures were prized possessions in that day. And by the time the Roman Empire was established, these Greek sculptures were already oftentimes hundreds, even thousand years old, um, preceding even sometimes Greece. But these statues, people wanted them. They were like the hot thing. And uh, you, you had to have one at your house or, or, or you, you, know, you find it somewhere. And so people are going out and they're going through ruins and they're pulling out these statues and they're shining them all up and they're putting them to the market. And you could go to market and you would see these pristine statues. And sometimes you would buy one and you'd bring it back and you'd set it up and they're like, oh, this is an original. It's vintage. It's 600 years old. You're going to love it. Um, I even found the head and we'll stick that back on there. They're always missing their heads. Every time you look at ancient statues, the head's almost always missing. Um, who knows? Uh, and... You buy it and you bring it home. And after a few years, you notice there's some like cracking starting to appear. And pieces are, it's like, it's almost like something's drying up and falling out. What, what would happen was they would, they would buy, they would get these, dig up these, these statues and there were cracks and it lowered the value. So they would take wax and they would rub wax all over the statue and they'd rub it into the marble cracks and all the pieces that are open and gaps there. Um, and it would cover up everything. So by the time they're done, this thing is shiny and smooth and it looks like it was just built just recently. And this was happening so often that people started putting up a sign with their statues that they were selling, which was Sign Sarah, without wax. This is where we get our word for sincere. Whoa. Um, without wax. Like, it's not fake. You can see the cracks. You can see what's there. It's, it's, it's reality. Your love must be sincere. It must be honest. It must actually... It's not, it's not, loving your enemies is not a strategy for conquering your enemies. There, there's nothing pragmatic even about it. There's a reason we love our enemies. We're going to talk about that, but the love has to be actual love. It can't be faking it. You're not acting. You're not trying to manipulate anybody. Actually loving them. It's the hard work we have to do. Uh, and so, love of enemies that is sincere 
Paul says, we'll look a certain way. Love must be sincere. It'll hate what is evil. It'll cling to what's good. It'll be devoted to one another. So the, there's, there's a way you would think about it. If, if it. It finds the good in a person and it clings to it. It sees something in a person whom everybody hates and everyone thinks is the most evil person and it goes to them and somehow it picks something that is good in their life to remind them that there is good in them. Maybe I've noticed that you love your son. I've noticed this. I've noticed this. I've noticed uh, you have many good things. And even somebody who is, even somebody who is, uh, who is, seems irredeemable, Paul says, search them for something. The image of God, if nothing else, is there in them. Nobody is too far gone. Everybody is redeemable. And, and, you know, love the things that are, that are good. Find it, cling to it, and bring it out. Uh, it also hates the, the things that are bad in them, the evil in them. Not just because of what it does to you and your community, but because of what it's, what it's done to them. It's made them. It's made them less than they were created to be. It's given them all kinds of pain in their life, which they have poured right through them as a conduit of pain to somebody else. It's also devoted to others, and it honors them. It honors them above yourself. It looks up to people as they enter into your life. It looks up to them and says, why has God brought you into my life? What does God want to teach me through you? Um, this is a way you can have sincere love for somebody by asking the right questions and being curious in the right ways. Um, to, be de- devoted to, 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 to be devoted to your own longevity over theirs is the opposite of love. Sincere love puts others above yourself and before yourself. Uh, and so it shares with people who are in need as if they were you, as if they were in your family, as if they were... Um, as if you were the one in need, you share with them. And so then you go to the next sort of passage here in verse 15 through 19, and he talks about blessing those who persecute you. I, I, I kind of picture, you know, you have all these people in the same room, and like I said, they usually would have been separated into sort of groups, tribal groups. It, and this is how uh, Phoebe, the, the reader of the letter, the preacher of the letter that, that we learn about in, in, in Romans chapter 16, she, the courier, she would have gone and she would have preached this letter. And I always picture the Gentiles over here and the Jews, Jewish Christians over here. And I, and, I, and I picture her sort of moving over to where the Gentiles are and standing with them and talking to the Jewish Christians about loving those who have persecuted them, knowing that a lot of that persecution came from the people she's standing there with and their families and their own people. And so there's a lot of healing. There's a lot of healing in this space that needs to happen to bring these two groups together. This side needs to humble themselves. This side, this side needs to dig deep and work on the hatred and the bitterness that's in their heart. And it's justified, but it's not Christ-like. And so there's no condemnation for them. There is only a hope projected upon them that like, you, we can find healing here. Things can change. Uh, and, and so when your enemy experiences a genuine good thing, celebrate with them. Surprise them. Uh, ge- genuinely pray for their flourishing. When your enemy experiences pain and loss and sadness, we don't gloat. We don't cheer. We mourn with them. We don't say, I'm so glad you're finally feeling what I feel. Instead, we say, I've been praying that you would never experience what I experienced at your hand because no one should ever experience that. And I'm so sorry for your pain. I know exactly what it's like. That breaks down even the biggest walls. 
but it takes a true working of Christ to get there. And as a person who has never experienced depression in my life, I can't ask you to do that. Paul is one of them. He's with them. And Paul is sort of saying, I'll walk with you. I'm one of you. I've done this work, and I love my Gentile brothers, and I can get you there, but it's going to be hard. And so there's all kinds of space here where, where God needs to work, and that's what he's calling for. He says, don't be conceited and associate with people of low position. Now, why would he say this to the weak? If you read chapter one of Romans, you'll see it. There was a way, or chapter one, by the way, was written to the Jewish people, not the Gentiles. And there's all kinds of harsh stuff in there. And the reason he starts the chapter off like this is because he's talking to the Jewish audience and he's using their slang and their language that they would use, the ways that they would describe their enemy. It's the same way liberals uh, describe uh, conservatives and the same way conservatives describe uh, liberals and Democrats. It's, it's, It's the harshest, most extreme language possible. They're baby killers, they're gun nuts, they're... They're, they're homophobes, they're, you know, they, they, they want to break down a family, they, they hate the family, they hate children, they're they, they, we have all these ways we, we describe each other in the most hateful, subhuman ways possible, and if you read chapter one, you see some of that Jewish language coming out against the Gentiles, and then chapter two, it starts off and it says, and when you talk about them like this, and when you condemn them, you're just condemning yourself, and so we have to stop. And so Paul is with them, and he's, he's bringing them to this place um, when he says, associate, always associate with people of low, low position. Don't be afraid to do so. The ways that the, Gentile, the, the, the Jewish Christians would talk about the Gentiles, they were, it's as if like, you know, for 1,800 years, we've been God's chosen people. We are God's chosen people. We are higher than you. And Paul would say, well, if that's true, if you really are higher than them, then the Christ-like thing to do is to lower yourself below them because that's what Jesus did. And so this advice is all pastoral. He says, you want to be Christ-like? Here's some steps you can take. Watch what happens. Watch the space that opens up for God to work in that space. Um, and so the last verse here reveals some reasoning. Uh, in, in chapter 12, verse 20, it says, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will reap burning coals on his head. This is that Proverbs 25 part. Okay, now, uh, this phrase, heap burning coals on his head. When I was a kid, I used to be told, Hey, you really want to make him mad? Compliment his shirt. Or, or like just... Like, hey, nice shirt. Shut up. You know what I mean? Like, there's, I was always told, like, you really want to make them mad, be the better person. Take the high road, and it'll really make them mad. It'll really, burning coals on their head. They'll be so angry. Really? Is that, is that what Jesus is trying to do? Is Jesus really trying to make people steam and seethe with anger and rage? He's literally not doing that. Um, this passage uh, it, it comes directly from like from Proverbs chapter 25. These people had not to, just several, a couple generations earlier escaped the uh, enslavement of Egypt. And so they, they had adopted a lot of the views of the ancient Egyptian people. They had picked up a little bit of their culture. If we even look at how they built the tabernacle, God commanded them to build it in a way that very similar, almost exactly emulates the Temple of Ramses and the Egyptian temples because it's what they were familiar with. And God says, I'll give you something you're familiar with. We're going to build a tabernacle and we're going to worship here. So some of this Egyptian stuff was still flying around in their language, in their culture. And so one of the things Egyptians uh, would do is, uh, there's this picture of the burning coals atop the head. Uh, It finds its origin in ancient Egypt's repentance rituals. Uh, When someone who wanted to make amends with someone, when someone had done something terrible and they so badly wanted to make it right again, they would get um, a dish of full of coals of fire in a dish, and they would, they would carry it above their head as evidence of, of genuine repentance and, and the smoke, and they would pass through the camp in front of everyone, and the smoke would be rising, and they would go to the person's house 
as just to say, I, I, I bring these coals for you, I, I repent. And they would set them down and add them to your fire and then lay down uh, before you and beg for your forgiveness. That's what Paul's talking about. He says, if your enemy is hungry, you feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And the sheer weight of the love that you lay upon them will cause them to have heaping coals upon their head. They bring to you and they repent. I am so sorry. See, Paul believes there's hope. Paul believes people can change. Paul believes that they can make an impact in the Roman Empire in this way. Now, we're going to open this up a little deeper next week and talk a little more about some of the things that Paul believed. I think, I think for the most part, Paul was right in how this would affect the Roman Empire, but he did make some crucial mistakes, and we'll talk about that next week. Um, ones that he corrected sort of in later writings, if you will. Uh, and so it's a very Jewish way of saying, like, these are the kind of things that God works through. God doesn't work, God doesn't work through threats, through violence, through punitive measures, through uprisings. God doesn't even... God doesn't change hearts through debate. You may not realize this. You can't argue somebody into following Jesus. You shouldn't become, you, if you are, you should not become a Christian because you lost an argument. Like, that's not how we come to Jesus. Like, that's not how it works. Um, the things that God works through, according to the revelation of Jesus, are things that look and function like the cross. Things that lower ourselves, things that pour ourselves out for other people, Things that forgive as you're hanging, as you're suffering, forgive them. They just, they don't understand yet. They don't know what they're doing. What Jesus cries out to, to his father while he's suffering on the cross over these people. When we act in ways that are cross-shaped, we call them cruciform acts. We open up space for God to work. As long as you are trying to conquer the other person in the argument, as long as you are trying to rage and debate them into your way, as long as you're trying to defeat them, God's not in that. Good luck. When you put the weapons down, when you put the power down, and you invite them to the table, and you serve them a meal, which they do not deserve and did not ask for, this opens up space for God to work. If you want to change a tyrant, you have to eat a lot of meals with them. That is the only way. It won't happen by screaming and yelling and telling them how horrible they are. As Timothy Keller used to say, no one ever found out they were a sinner by being told. Ever. Um, so God doesn't work through those things. These are always of conquer each other. Jesus works through the cross. Any action that emulates the cross, God can bring both justice and restoration if we do these things his way. And so he follows that up in verse 21 where we see this. Do not, overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The hatred of enemy will eat you alive inside and out. It will overcome you. If you allow that bitterness to fester, if you continue to hate this person, your enemy, the more you hate them, the more you become hateful. It fills you up. And so we have to find ways to fill our cup with love and have it overflow from there. I believe it is the highest calling of the Christian to walk through difficulty and strife and division and anger while loving your enemies well on purpose. It is the highest calling of the Christian to love their enemies well and to ask serious questions about why we are so prone to violence and hating those with power over us and why we are always striving to get that power so that we can force other people to do things that we want them to do. Knowing full well that God revealed that is not how the world works. Salvation, restoration, and healing come through the cross. 
and any shape that follows it, any action that follows the cross. And so evil cannot be conquered by evil. It can only be suppressed by it, but it can, it can only be overcome and actually changed and healed with goodness. Paul puts this here after mentioning all of this goodness that he lays out there for him. And he says, he says you become what you embody. Don't wield hatred and vengeance. It, it ends up wielding you. What you bring into existence in this way, it eventually it, it controls you. You bring sin and violence and hatred into the world. Eventually, that hatred and anger and violence makes you do something. That's why after so many times when mass groups of people do terrible things together, they all collectively start saying things like, I don't know what got into me. I don't know what came over me. I just went along with the crowd. Of course you did. When you, when you, when you flirt with bitterness and anger and vengeance, it overtakes you. It controls you. It, it moves you in a way that you did not want to and didn't mean to go. That's what happens. That is the warning Paul lays out for them. Don't entertain talk of revolution in the church. This is what Paul says to them. I think this is what Paul says to us. This is probably a conversation the Germans needed to have in the 40s when the church went along with all the terrible things that happened until it was too late and they went, oh no. And so Paul speaks into our day with these same conversations happening and Paul says, don't Don't entertain thoughts of revolution in the church, of violent revolution. Don't do it. That is not who Jesus is. That is not what Jesus does. It was literally the opposite thing of what Jesus did. And so you have two tools for dealing with evil. There is fear and there is love. Humanity uses fear. That is what we use to deal with evil. We we, we tap into the darkness, the darkest urges of people. We tap into our... um, we tap into like the, the fears of each other. They're going to do this to your family and this to your kids and this to your... And they're, they're, this is all the things. Look at all the terrible things that they're going to do to you. You better join us. Literally passed a billboard on the other day. I said, if you don't vote for this guy, America's over. I was like, what? Why are we doing this? What kind of fear and anger are, 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 are we planting in each other so that we can continue to follow the beast, the prince of darkness into the world and, and, and bring about violence? It's the third temptation that Jesus offered to Jesus. He's like, hey, bow down and worship me, and you can have all of it. And we regularly attempt to take Satan up on that offer, all the time. And so, like, there are two tools for dealing with evil. There's fear, which stokes the anger, and it it, it brings about terrible things. And then there is love, which taps into the divine heart of the universe. Love taps into our brightest and most hopeful urges. There is... So much fear in ideology today, in, in the, the arguments that we have in theology and all of it. I was raised with a theology of fear. I watched these videos that basically told me that one day everyone's going to disappear and then, and then you got to choose whether or not you're going to do this thing or get this stamp so you can end up with a guillotine. And, and, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm so happy for you. <laughs> these things were terrifying and they were intended to scare you into loving Jesus, but it never developed a love. It developed a an absolute devout fear, which ended up in bitterness and ended up in me ending up agnosticism. Most of my friends I grew up with in the church, high up in ministry, 90% of them are atheists now. They say, oops, they say, I'm no longer afraid and there's no place in my life for that kind of fear. <laughs> like, makes perfect sense. Um, they never were shown the love. They were never shown the love in the church. Um, so instead of, instead of telling me what to be afraid of and guiding my decisions by fear, how about 
You show me what Jesus looks like. You show me what love can do. You show me how good this thing can be and, and say, hey, you know, you should join me over here. I'm like, why? Show, tell me why. And, and the answer is not because if you don't, they're going to kill you, whatever. Uh, the answer is because it brings so much life. Come here, let me show you. Walk with me. Tell me how it's changed your life. How has it brought you healing and wholeness and goodness? Not about how terrible your opponents are. Show me the riches or riches of your people, not the poverty of theirs. Show me the treasure that you have and that you're leading me to. You have to be leading me to something, not away from something. Jesus is leading us to something. The apostles, the church, they're leading us towards something, not away from something. And, and, you know, both fear and love can bring about revolution, but only one can do it without violence. Love can, itself can bring about a revolution that is very, very different, that is life-giving that is willfully chosen by everyone. Um, and, and that's when, when Jesus really comes close. And so what we have here, we have the verse that sort of, um, right in the middle of it is this hopeful peace that Paul lays out there. In Romans 12, 12 to 13, he says, be joyful in hope, be patient in affliction. Remember who he's talking to. Be, painful, be patient in, in, in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need and practice hospitality. He says, there is, there is indeed hope. You can be joyful in hope. You can be patient in affliction. And, and if, you know, if, if you know God is, is, is using it to bring healing, if you know that when you walk through this, that God is going to use that to establish his kingdom in your life and your community in some way, then you can walk through it boldly, stoically even, in joy. I remember when, uh, when we were having our first baby, uh, that's you, Priest. Uh, when we were having our first baby, I, I, I remember there's your first time, there's this, um, there's this like fear. You know, it's all new. It's a whole, it's an alien planet you've just landed on. Here we go. And we're going we're gonna, to, and, and a baby's going to, and, 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 and this could go a million different ways, and what are we going to do? And I remember talking to my wife and saying, are you, are you scared? She legit was like, no, I'm not. I'm like, What? I'm terrified. How can you not be terrified? She goes, because I know, like, yeah, it's going to be painful. It's going to hurt and all that. But on the other end of it, I have a baby. Like, there's hope through the whole thing. Like, I can endure that. If there was nothing on the other side, heck no. But there's a new life on the way. I'm not afraid. There's, there's a treasure at the end of it. I can walk through this if there's a treasure at the end of it. And that's sort of, that's the energy that Paul has for them. What Jesus and apostles set out to, to give us, to give the world, was not a warning. It was not a fear-based warning. It was an invitation to a new way, a new life, a new way of being that is, that is nourishing, that is good, and is, that, is, that is filled with, with wholeness and healing. It was a promise of a new world, a community where you were accepted and loved by those who once hated and rejected you. That is the picture that, that Paul gives us here. A new community where these people that once hated you, you see each other now as brothers and sisters. A community where you don't have to go it alone, where good is being done, where healing is taking place, where the poor are fed, where the wealthy are providing, uh, where wealthy are providing for that poor to be fed, where the slave and the master serve each other, where the women and children are given dignity and raised, and raised up and put alongside even the most powerful man at the table. Everyone made equal in the space, and they are given Leadership, which is good and perfect and, and, and humble and nourishing, which is Jesus. And we all receive the same king and we all receive the same meal. That's the beautiful thing about the communion table. 
There are some of you who have been walking with Jesus your whole life and, and, and you have fruit on your tree, man. Like you, you are patient and you're gentle and you're humble and you're godly and you're Christ-like and we come to you for help. And when you come to the communion table, you know what you receive? More than everyone else. No, you don't. You receive the exact same as the person who, who walked in off the street last night, still hung over because they're trying to dull the pain of the life that they live. And they come in and they gather with you and take communion and you are the same in the eyes of Jesus. That's what Paul is offering. That's a stumbling block for powerful people. It is life-giving for the people at the bottom. And so there's work to be done over here and there's work to be done over here. And we all find ourselves at the same place in the church. And that's what Paul's doing. And now, I'm gonna wrap this up, but next week Paul says, now let's talk together about what it means to live in the Roman Empire together. And that's what we're gonna talk about next week. And so let's pray and, uh, and, and pray our way out. Father, thank you for, uh, for this place and these people, for what you are doing here, the way you're guiding us and leading us. I pray that we would be humble, that we would love our enemies, that we would see them as redeemable, as be hopeful for them. Um, give us Give us the appearance of you in this world. Help us to be your presence. May your face shine upon us. May your countenance rest upon us and grant us peace. Thank you, Father, in your name. Amen. Would you stand with me? And we will uh, pray the Lord's Prayer on our way out. Nice and loud today, all right? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive our sins as as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Come on. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Grace and peace. Love you all. Have the greatest Sunday you've ever had.